About 20 years ago, a little more than that, uh, Bob Carr, who's um, then Premier of New South Wales, opened a drug summit. And he said something that, I, that, that really grabbed me, and so I saved the quote. He said this, The view I reached is that life is an inherently disappointing experience for most human beings. Why did he say that? Well, he was explaining why, as I understand it, his own brother had died of a drug overdose. And he's explaining why so often people will go down that path because the pain and the disappointment goes away, at least temporarily. And it is, it is as you get older, easy to be disappointed with life. I was talking to a room full of blokes on Thursday night about that. You get to a certain age and your dreams begin to die. And so disappointments can very easily turn into bitterness. Here's a definition of bitterness. Wait a minute, let's go back. We got it. There we go. Bitterness, anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly. Resentment. What is it that makes people bitter? Well, it's that feeling of, yeah, life has been unfair to me or other people have been unfair to me, uh, a loss of hope. Uh, bitterness is very obvious in the lives of some people. You know, there are some people who walk around like they've just been sucking on a lemon, okay? As others, you just got to scratch a little bit and that bitterness or resentment is there. Now, of course, the good news is, if you're a Christian, that'll never happen to you, right? Actually, ironically, being a Christian can sometimes make it worse. Why? Because... Well, you sign up to follow Jesus and, you know, people will tell you Jesus promises that life will be wonderful. You'll live the victory life. You'll be healed of everything. You'll have lots of money. You'll be successful, health, wealth, beauty. And then it doesn't happen. And so Jesus could fix up my life and give me all my dreams and he doesn't. And it can even make it worse. Now, the book of Ruth is an answer to the question, or if you like, the book of Ruth is... Uh, as you watch people's lives, is about answering the question, where is God when life is hard? Or where is God when life is disappointing? Uh, it's a beautiful story about ordinary people. And yet, I think what it is, for lots of us, it's hard to think from kind of philosophical propositions into our lives. So God tells us stories about people because everyone gets a story. So when is Ruth, if you have a look um, in your Bibles or on that handout, the first verse of the book of Ruth tells us when it happened. Um, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. So it's immediately after judges, which if you've read judges, it should be rated M, A or R. It's full of blood and thunder and violence, etc. Let's put it in context, though, in, the his in history. Uh, here we go. There's a thousand years of biblical history from Abraham down to David. Here's one I prepared earlier. We'll zoom in. So Abraham and Sarah come from the creatively named um, city of Ur. Okay. Um, I think they could have come up with something better than that, wouldn't you? What am I going to call the place? Uh, okay. Um, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob. Yeah. Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter uh, called Dinah. And then um, that's kind of that's, that's the flow of the book of Genesis. Uh, and then Jacob's family, through Joseph, moved down to Egypt. 
and they're there for around about 400 years. They turn from a family of 70 into thousands and thousands of people. And then um, Moses, or God raises up Moses, about 1400 BC, something like that, uh, to bring the people out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. Moses, Moses dies at the edge of the promised land. God uses Joshua to come in and they conquer most of the promised land, don't do the job properly. And the fact that they don't do the job properly, the book of Judges is a kind of a cycle where the people walk away from God and they uh, start following the, um, uh, the, well, the fertility gods, I guess is how you call them, the fertility gods who offer um, wealth and prosperity. You know, your cattle will have lots of calves and your crops will grow and you can see that kind of the seductive thing that keeps drawing them away. God sends another nation to make their life a misery. Then God raises up a judge like Ehud, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, etc. Uh, after that, they, the people ask for a king. It's King Saul. And you finally get to the great king of the Old Testament, David, who's about 1000 BC. So where does the book of Judges fit in? Right there. Um, sorry, where does, the, where does the book of Ruth fit in? in the time of the judges. And so what I, what I like about it is you've got judges is kind of a national or tribal stage. So Samson's busy ripping the arms off Philistines, etc. And then there's this little family that no one would have known about, these little anonymous people, Naomi, Ruth, etc. And actually God's at work over here in these little inverted commas, unimportant people. So let's have a look. Ruth chapter 1. All I'm going to do is read the story and try and um, uh, show you a bit of colour and movement in the story. So Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. If you were a native Hebrew speaker, you'd say, what? Because I've just read, we have just read, there's a famine in Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread, and yet there's a famine there. Now, how can that be? Because God promised in the book of Deuteronomy, this would be the promised land. Right? The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouses of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and bless all the work of your hands. Except they kept getting seduced by the fertility gods and wandering off after them. You've read about Baal, B-A-A-L, one of the, which meant master. He was God of the thunderstorm. Right. Tell you why, why it was so seductive, and that is, well, it, um, at, at a really basic level, the men kept getting dragged or seduced away because the way you worship the fertility gods was to go and have sex at the, at the, the temples with temple prostitutes. Right. Um, but at a, at a deeper level, it offers prosperity and wealth and lifestyle. And, uh, and so they kept getting dragged away. Now, God had warned them in Deuteronomy, which Moses speaking to the people before they come into the land, if they did that, walked off and served other gods, God promised the sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron, the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. And God keeps his promises. And so there is um, a famine in the land. What are we told? The man's name was Elimelech, 
verse 2. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Uh, The Ephrathite word is kind of an early way of talking about the Bethlehem area, and the scholars say it may indicate that they were kind of a fairly well-off family. Elimelech, El-Melech, means my God is king, or God is king. And Naomi, anyone know? Pleasant or sweet? Uh Delightful. Pleasant, sweet, delightful. Beautiful name. Now, Marlon and Kilion, it's interesting, they're Canaanite names. And I think they may have been nicknames that the kids, the boys got when they got there. Um, uh, Because Marlon and Kilion mean weak and sickly, um, and Kilion means whingy or, or complaining. So... The kids end up getting called weak and sickly and whingy or... Anyway, that's... Yep. Uh, but it's a way that they would, have, they would have been able to fit in in Moab. Now, Moab itself, if you're a Bible reader, is a problem, and that is Moab had been an enemy of Israel. So when the people are coming out of Egypt and trying to get to the Promised Land, Moab as a nation did everything they could to stop them. Uh, you can read about that in the book of Numbers, Balaam and all the... Uh, Strange stories. The origin of Moab uh, is not great. Um, Moab, well, you've got in Genesis, Abraham has a nephew called Lot. Lot goes to live in the town of Sodom, and you know that's not going to end well. Um, uh, God decides that he will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Ironically, in the, in the prophets, it's because they were so greedy. That was the, the tipping point. Lot and his two daughters are the only ones saved out of the town and later the daughters decide they need children and so Moab uh, is the firstborn of the incestuous union between Lot's daughters and their father. Uh, As one of my daughters describes it as, ew, okay. Um, Yeah, and so that's like, you're meant to read Moab as, oh, that's not, not good. Where is Moab? Uh, at this time, what, 1300 BC or so, oh no, sorry, 1200 BC or so, Moab uh, on the east and south of the Dead Sea. Do you see where Bethlehem is? So it's a fair walk, 80 or so kilometres to get around the Dead Sea there and to go to Moab. Now incidentally, as you look, Elimelech has taken his family away from where the God of Israel had promised to be and in search of prosperity, success, whatever, has taken them to Moab. And he's taken them away from the promises of God and to this faraway country, and it's worse because the Moabites worshipped the god Shemosh and human sacrifice of children was a big thing for them. So you sacrifice your children and Shemosh will give you lots of cows and crops and all that kind of thing. It's not unknown for society to sacrifice the unborn for lifestyle. Uh, Elimelech takes his family away from Bethlehem and takes them to Moab. And gentlemen, I know it's politically incorrect to say, but it's true that you will set the spiritual direction and temperature of your family. And Elimelech has not done this well. So we're told, verse 3, Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, they're in Moab. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. 
and she was left with her two sons. We're not told why he died. We're not told that it's a punishment. He just died. She's a widow, which is bad, but at least she's got the two sons. Verse 4, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Uh, the scholars aren't aware of the... Uh, they don't know the meaning of those names. Ruth might mean friendship, but no one's exactly sure. Verse 4, after... After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Once again, we're not told why. We're not told it's a punishment or anything. They just, things happen. They died. Now, in an agrarian society, a society built on agriculture, to be a widow, you're staring down the barrel of poverty. In fact, you've got three widows now. Right? Why? There's no tractors, there's no engines, just in a society where blokes had to go out and do the heavy work, testosterone was not a dirty word, okay? And so you're looking at poverty, and not only that, in that culture, particularly in those days, it's your family that gave you an identity, your descendants, and so there's no descendants either. So you're staring at poverty and you're staring at being a nobody, now, that's all changed with the New Testament and Jesus, but in this culture, it's grim. So what happens? Verse 6. What have we got here? Yep, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. By the way, I don't know if, you, if you're used to the Bible, but where the Bible translators put Lord in all capitals, that's the personal name of the God of Israel. As far as we know how to pronounce it, Yahweh, so Lord of all capitals, personal name, the God of Israel, um, providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And notice the Lord's been kind to his people. He's sent rain, etc. Uh, and so the three women are going to walk back to Bethlehem Big thing, she, Naomi's an elderly lady by now. She's got, you know, full-grown adult boys and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and she's going to walk 60 to 80 kilometres carrying all her possessions with her uh, daughters-in-law. Now, when you read the story, she's on her own, no sons, no husband. She really needs these two girls, Ruth and Orpah. And they are, they are the ones who are going to look after her, keep her alive, but have a look at what she says. Verse 8. What have we got here? Yep, verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your own mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. I'll keep going. Verse 10. And they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I, to have, sorry, am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, is the Lord's hand against her? 
tell you what, there's hard things in life. Imagine you lose a husband and then you lose your two boys and you've got nothing. You're going to go back to Bethlehem with nothing and your tail between your legs and is the Lord against her? I'll tell you what you see. As you read the story, this is actually the severe mercy of God. It's severe, but it's the mercy of God. I'll tell you why. Because if God hadn't put this into her life, she probably never would have gone home. You imagine if, if uh, the husband was really well and they were making a fortune and the cows were breeding and the crops were growing and they, they, would, have, they would have stayed in Moab. Now, why does she say to the two girls, go home? Because she loves them. And she says, if you, she knows if you come back with me, what you can look forward to be in Israel is being a second-class citizen, well, actually not even a citizen at all, and you can expect racism and being looked down on and grinding poverty and, you know, so go home, go home. Verse 14, at this they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, verse 15, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. I've thought a lot about this. Verse 15 says she's going back to her people and her gods. I reckon Naomi's faith in the God of Israel is hanging by a thread. She's saying, oh, you might as well go back. I, I just think that's showing, whoa, she's wobbly on, on trusting God at the moment. And then Ruth Ruth gives one of the sweetest speeches in the whole of the Bible. Verse, uh, verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, notice all capitals, he's calling on the God of Israel, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now there's commitment. Right? Um, she will stay with Naomi and care for her all her life. And uh, it's even a stronger commitment than marriage. Okay? Um, in marriage, if your partner dies, you get set... Um, sorry... Um, <laughs> I almost said you get set free. No, I didn't say that. Uh, uh, in marriage, you're, you're, it's until death do we part. What she's saying, I'll die in the same town that you do. I will stay there. Nothing will separate us. Uh, I'm, I'm committed to you. I'll die in the same place that you die. And then, you know, she says, your God will be my God. Somehow, over the years of seeing this family and whatever, she has come to put her trust in the God of Israel. Yahweh. And so it's a great act of trust. She's saying, I'll, I'll, I'm committed to looking after you. I will come back. And um, it's kind of the opposite of prosperity theology. Prosperity theology says, oh, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and beautiful in the victory life. That is an evil thing that people teach. Um, it's not, here's a better word, pernicious I looked it up. Right? What is, this is, pernicious is a great word. It means having a harmful effect, especially on, in a gradual or subtle way. Point being, God doesn't promise that. In fact, if the New Testament promises anything, it's that life will be harder actually living as a Christian. And there will be hard things in life. And, and, and the great irony is when the hard things come, prosperity theology 
um, tells you you don't have enough faith or whatever. It actually undermines the very time when you need God and trust in him most. It's, it's just evil. But for Ruth, it's, it's the opposite. She knows what she's looking at is poverty and being a second-class citizen and probably being you know, racism or, or whatever it is. And yet she still signs up. Why? She'll trust God and she's going to look after Naomi. Verse 18. Yep. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So there's this beautiful bond between these two women. Uh, Different artists have tried to catch it. I I found a few. There's one. I like that one. Um, Another one here. Yeah, that one's okay. Uh, Wait a minute. Let me see. There we go. Yeah. Haven't it? Yeah, I think I like the first one the best. But anyway, that's all right. Okay. Um, so what are we told? Uh, verse 19. So the two women went on uh, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. It's a tiny little village, right? Okay. Um, was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So she's been away at least 10 years, significantly more, okay? Um, The boys have grown up, etc. Then verse 20, what does she say? Go back. Verse 20, she says, Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet, pleasant. She told them, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Notice every time they talk about Ruth, it's Ruth, the Moabite, just kind of flagging that. Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now you see... Has the Lord done that? The Lord has brought me back empty, etc. Yes, he's done that. He's done that. But I'll put it to you as you read the book, you see it's his severe mercy. But it's turned her bitter. She is, she is bitter. She's been, it's been unfairly treated. In fact, uh, in fact, changed my name to bitter. That makes it pretty attractive, doesn't it? Right? Okay. And she's come back with nothing, just one girl who's a Moabite. All right, that's chapter one. Part of what I do sometimes is to um, work with young blokes at a Bible college uh, and they're preaching and uh, to listen. Um, if they're thinking about starting a church, I'll listen to their sermons, etc., and kind of give them a, some constructive feedback. I heard a young bloke uh, speak on Ruth chapter one. Uh, I guess he's 30, a couple of kids still um, kind of squeaky clean and fresh, uh, out of, paint still wet, like out of Bible college. Uh, and so he preached on Ruth chapter 1 and then, and then he said, um, now, uh, bitterness. Now, the New Testament uh, says three times that uh, Christians should not be bitter. Um, uh, in Ephesians and Hebrews and James. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 Get rid of all bitterness, uh, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So, bitterness, stop it. (laughs) And I thought to myself, oh, mate, 
you're 30 years old, life's great for you, everything's shiny and clean. And life hasn't kicked the crap out of you yet, has it? Right? But it will. Right? It will. Put 20 years on him and he'd preach a very different sermon. Right? And for some of you younger ones, I hope everything's shiny and clean and wonderful. But I'll tell you something, the pain's on the way. The trucks may have left the depot already. It's coming. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to the talk? It's coming. It will, I guarantee. Right? I, Twelve years ago, my mum got Alzheimer's. Seven years later, she died. That's about standard time. And I remember my dear sweet sister, who was a Christian, and she's so close. She loved my mum so much. She was so close to her. She said, I've cried and cried and cried till I've run out of tears, she said. Bitterness. Anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly and resentment. Do you imagine saying to Naomi, well, just stop, right? You don't know it yet, but in the New Testament three times, so just stop. What would you tell her? What would you tell her? Just stop. You've been, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. Does that? No. What would you tell her? My humble attempt would be this. Naomi, you don't know it yet, but this is just chapter one. And you ought to see what happens by chapter four. And I know it hurts now, right? I know it hurts. And you can't see chapter four yet. But it's going to be okay. Because you trust God. Now, I know this looks like a bumper sticker and it'll probably be a good one, actually. Right? You, you trust God. It'll be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Right? Um, and you read on, actually, and we will over this weekend. Uh, one more talk today and then one tomorrow. We'll get to the end and you'll see. It, it's brilliant in the end. Okay. Now, why do I love this little book? i tell you why I love this little book. is because it's about ordinary people. And God loves ordinary people. He made lots of us. Right? Um, and the other thing is this. You read the book, there's no miracles. There's no prophets. Um, there's nothing spectacular. And so you don't even hear from God says this in the book. And so where is God in the book? I'll see if you can find him and see him. And his fingerprints are all over it. Like even just at the end of um, chapter one, when do they arrive in Bethlehem? Just happened to arrive as the barley harvest is beginning. Uh, significance of that? Well, we'll, I'll show you after morning tea, okay? Or we'll read it. And so how does God care for his people as well? Not, it's not miraculous. It's, we'll see it's God's people looking after one another. And so how does it end? Well, sorry, spoiler alert, but um, chapter 4, um, and the women of the, of the village speaking of her grandson who's born, and they say, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. What do they say? She turns up, she says, oh, I'm all alone, I'm empty, just I've only got this Moabite girl. 
by the end of the story, the other women, the Israelite women say, she's better than seven sons. And seven sons were like the proverbial perfect family. And so we're told, a minute, here we go, yep. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In fact, you say to Naomi, you know, it's not the end. She had no idea that she would be the great, great, great grandmother of, anyone know who? Come on, you can do it. Yeah, Jesus, always the answer, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus, that's right, okay. What are you teaching these people, Mac? Yeah, she's a great-great-grandmother of Jesus. It'll be okay in the end. Hang on, it hurts, you can squeal, that's okay, but keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. And so what's, what's the answer to bitterness? I think it's being able to live with thankfulness and, and hope. Look again at what Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Understand God's generosity. It'll make you able to forgive others. It'll give you hope, etc. Now, folks, life, life will not go the way that you would write the script. I guarantee. Uh-huh. It's just the way it is. But if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a very clear promise in the New Testament. Here it is. Uh-huh. In Romans chapter 8. Let me just pick a cu- There's so much in this verse. Let me just pick something out, though. He says this. And we know that in all things, right, everything, God works for the good of those who love him. Right? God will make everything work for your good. Now, what's the good? Look down to the red. What? For those God for new he also have predestined, here's the good, to be conformed to the image of his son. God will use everything that happens right, to form you, mould you, turn you to be like Jesus. Uh, now, Here's, that's great news. Here's the slightly harder news. The easy things in life don't change us. The easy things in life don't change us. It's harder things that teach us. Let me read you a speech from um, this man, John Roberts. Um, he still is uh, Chief Justice of the United States. I understand that he's uh, quite a committed Roman Catholic man, so he'll understand some of the things. Uh, in 2017, he gave a speech to his son's um, middle school graduation. I'll read you uh, just a little bit of it. He says this. From time to time in the years to come, I hope that you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you'll be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to learn to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you will be ignored so that you will know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain 
to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they are going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend on your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. That is very close to the way that God promises that he'll mould and change us and teach us. And, you know, do you... (laughs) Have you... um, you ever met anyone who said, uh, oh, I haven't seen you for a while, and they say, oh, look, we just went on this overseas holiday, um, we travelled around Europe for a couple of months and, uh, and, and stayed in great hotels, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and then we had a tour of the United States, and, and we went to the Rocky Mountains, and we come back, and I'm a different person. My character has improved so much. <laughs> no, of course not. Go and have the holiday, by all means, but it's not going to change your character. What changes character? Sadly, it's, it's hard things. And often it's the severe mercy of God to mould us and change us. And it may be sickness, or it may be, be being single when you wish you weren't, or it may be being married when you wish you weren't, or it may be kids having them when you wish you didn't, or not having them when you wish you did, or family, or disappointments, or then the list goes on and on and on, and, and it can be hard. But what does God promise? It'll be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. And hang on, and one day you will see what it is that he was doing and why he was doing it. And you read the book of Ruth... These, this little family, this little family, are the answer. Well, these two women who've got the courage to hang on, look after each other, trust God, they become the great-great-great-grandmothers of Jesus himself. So what's that promise? Well, we go back. What's that promise? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, to be conformed to the image of his Son. You pray with me? Our Father, we ask please that we'd be able to trust you in the middle of the hard things in life. Ask we'd be able to be uh, grateful and enjoy the good things, but in the hard times to be able to trust you, to know that ultimately um, you want our good and you will work to conform us to the image of your Son. We ask please that we may be able to trust him Uh, and hold on and live by faith as we wait for his return. We ask this in his name.